You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Mixed stadium news on the election front. We'll cover all sides of this story where the city of Arlington, Texas, made a powerful statement about a second dome stadium in their town. They like it. But in San Diego, the never-ending search for a stadium solution continues. Citizens voted thumbs down on tax support for a downtown stadium for the Chargers. What happens now? We'll find out from Jeff Senior of SB Nation's Chargers blog, Bolts from the Blue. There's a new statue diving into Cincinnati's Great American Ballpark. It's Pete Rose, and this statue will be different. We'll find out how from Reds Hall of Fame Executive Director Rick Walls. What NBA team has the longest season-by-season home winning record streak? This one surprised me, and I did their games. Writer Jerry Tapp talks about the NBA's home court advantage. And we'll talk shop with Stadium's USA executive producer Jeff Schmidt. An arresting conversation about stadium arrests. But first... Jeff, with the stadium's beat. Well, stadium votes were in the headlines this week. A new stadium for the Chargers was defeated in San Diego, while voters in Arlington, Texas, approved a new ballpark for the Rangers. Stay tuned, a complete breakdown of these votes later in our program. Elsewhere, rumors are percolating once again, connecting the Tampa Bay Rays and the city of Montreal. A Montreal freelance journalist tweeted that Rays owner Stuart Sternberg had commissioned a study looking at a stadium in the Montreal neighborhood of Griffintown. The tweets prompted a Tampa investigative reporter to ask the Rays about their interest in going north of the border. They responded that they are committed to keeping Major League Baseball in Tampa for generations to come. Stay tuned on this one. Well, sticker shock in Detroit. Officials say the cost of building the new Red Wings arena has jumped by 105 million bucks. The new price tag for Little Caesars Arena is nearly 733 million. The new numbers reflect the specific cost of materials and subcontractor agreements. Arena officials say the revisions do not indicate cost overruns nor will taxpayers be saddled with additional expenses. Georgia State University has been given the green light to purchase Turner Field in Atlanta, clearing the way to convert the former home of the Braves into a mid-sized college football stadium. The school is paying nearly $23 million for the venue. The stadium will seat 23000 with the ability to add another 10,000 seats in the future. And the first structural steel was erected this week in Milwaukee at the new home of the Bucks. Officials with the builder Mortensen Construction say the target remains to have the $500 million venue done by the summer of 2018. 
Bill, that's the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. A lot of buzz down in Cincinnati where a new statue is on the way for the grounds of the Great American Ballpark next season. We're going to visit with Reds Hall of Fame Executive Director Rick Walls, and this statue will certainly be special. It'll be a Pete Rose statue. Tell us all about this. I know everybody's keyed up about it down there. You know, statue projects uh, have become an important part of museum operations here at the Reds Hall of Fame. When they built the ballpark here at Great American Ballpark, uh, there were four statues placed on what is called Crosley Terrace. And these were players that were made their uh, name known for playing at Crosley Field, the ballpark that you know the Reds called home until 1970. And then Riverfront Stadium came around, and of course the Big Red Machine took over baseball in many ways in the 70s, the back-to-back world championships in 75 and 76. And, you know, we felt uh, this was probably, this was in 2010, we started talking to Johnny Bench, and we were saying, we want to build a statue for you, Johnny. We think that's important, the greatest baseball catcher ever. And Johnny talked to us a lot about other statues as well and his teammates and how he felt that was important. So our statue program launched with Johnny Bench in 2011, then one for Joe Morgan in 2013, Tony Perez in 15. And, of course, uh, you couldn't uh, really have a statue program without Mr. Peter Edward Rose, and his (laughs) statue will be unveiled June 17th of 2017. This statue will be different. It's going to look different, and it really captures the essence of the hustling career of Pete Rose. I think everybody will be amazed to see it. Give us a verbal description of what this statue is going to look like. Well, you know, you just said it. Pete's uh, the way he played the game, uh, kind of representing uh, the, the blue-collar work, work ethic, you know, saying that, hey, heart, hustle, determination, you don't have to be the greatest player in the world but have the will and desire to win, and sacrifice. And I think sacrifice is a key way to put the description of the statue. Pete would sacrifice himself for the good of the team, the idea of the headfirst slide, and he did that so many times, whether it was in the second or third, or, you know, sometimes he ran over guys at home plate too, but – his all-out hustle really was captured almost as though he's in midair, arms extended, hair flying back, helmets already rolled off, almost like Superman to some degree, flying into third base uh, like he did so many times. And I, I think that the way this is going to be constructed uh, and placed right in the front of Great American Ballpark, uh, we've had to use some pretty – a new technology to make sure it was strong enough and he could be what we'd say cantilevered so that he's almost suspended in air. So you won't see a post below him holding him up. His hands will be touching the ground and pretty much your support runs through his arms. Rick, obviously Pete was a very controversial player. Do you get a sense as the years go by that there is a healing process that is going on uh, that is putting things in a better balance for Pete? I do. And I believe that, you know, time can heal all wounds, uh, especially if the person tries hard to do that. And in Pete's own way, he has uh, made an attempt to try to, you know, get back into baseball as much as he can. And through the uh, his actions with the commissioner and his requests uh, to the new commissioner, which have, of course, been denied for any reinstatement, but the commissioner made it clear that 
that doesn't mean that he would exclude him from any possible honors that are out there, and those are really left up to the institutions that might do that honoring. Hence, the Hall of Fame here in Cincinnati changed its rule, which uh, really allowed him to be considered. And I think with what you see him doing on TV and uh, he certainly is helping himself right now. Uh, you know, he's done enough to hurt himself over the years, and he's he recognizes that. Uh, he feels like he's making the effort, and we've seen him very humble around here, and he's treated the Reds Hall of Fame extremely well. Over time, as you mentioned, he's, he's probably going to get more and more leeway and consideration, but it, it may take a long time. Tell us a little bit about the person who designs these statues. You've had the same person involved with each one, and apparently he is incredibly gifted. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, Tom Sachia is, you know, a local guy here in Cincinnati who has now will have done all of the what we call the eight statues that will be at the ballpark. And he's a great person to work with. And what he likes to do is get to know the subject really, really well. So his research is is strong. He talks to the subject. He gets the feel for what they would like to see. Uh, he talks to this, us, the staff here at the Hall of Fame, of course, Reds, we all get together and decide what the statue should look like. And, you know, we've had Pete on our mind for years, uh, even though we're just getting to it now. And I think Head First was always the thought with him. Where with Johnny Bench, we had a different thought of him, uh, that strong catcher throwing down to second. And with Joe Morgan, we wanted to talk about speed and intelligence. So he's stealing a base and something he really liked as well. And Tony Perez is. The way Tony puts it, he's hacking, he's hitting, he's knocking in an RBI. You know, he's hitting that home run in Boston in the '75 World Series. <laughs> and uh, with Pete, you know, and working with him and, and and Tom, you know, it was pretty easy to come to this conclusion. And the process has been meeting with Pete a few times, taking all kinds of measurements. And this starts as a little mold, you know, a little teeny small clay mold, and then starts to develop. And over time, it grows. It's almost like adding water, but it grows. Uh, and then we end up developing a large styrofoam mold and then building clay on top of that again before he takes it to the foundry and starts to put this thing into bronze and giving it the permanence and having it a great American ballpark. So it's, it's a pretty in-depth process. Rick, we thank you very much for the visit. A hearty congratulations on this. Thank you very much, Bill. Hope that you can get down and see it sometime. Reds Hall of Fame Executive Director Rick Walls, our guest. Now, we'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need.
If you're an election watcher, you might have been very interested in the situation in San Diego. The news not good for the San Diego Chargers as a ballot initiative regarding a new downtown stadium was soundly defeated. We want to get the story on this from Jeff Sinyard, who heads up the Bolts from the Blue blog, the SB Nation site dedicated to Chargers news and analysis. Well, Jeff, take us through it in San Diego. Exactly what happened and what does it mean? The um, ballot measure in San Diego, which was called Measure C, was for the city of San Diego only. It was a measure to increase the um, hotel tax, the visitors from out-of-town tax, and use that money to mostly subsidize a new football stadium and convention center in downtown San Diego. And it required a two-thirds majority to pass. The uh, latest election results here in San Diego indicate that it only got about 42 to 43 percent of the vote. I know Dean Spanos had made a remark prior to the vote being taken that essentially he would get one idea if the vote was around 30 percent and another one if it was around 60 percent regarding the viability. This seems to sit right in the middle. And uh, so I think he's going to have an awful lot of thinking. Just what's the process going to be from here? Well, the uh, next steps, and in fact, as um, as a season ticket holder, uh, Dean Spanos sent us sent all season ticket holders out um, a letter thanking us for our support and saying that he wasn't going to make any immediate announcements that he was going to take some time to digest the uh, results, and he was going to wait until January before making any decision. The interesting and important thing about January is that, based on the agreement that allowed the Rams to relocate from St. Louis to Los Angeles, the Chargers were given the first option to join the Rams in Los Angeles. And as the agreement is written now, the Chargers have until the middle of January to exercise that option. If they don't, that option would then revert to the Oakland Raiders. It seems to me that Spanos wants to keep this team in San Diego if possible. And so he is probably trying to determine what is the actual will of the people here. Uh, You've been around that area for a while. I'll just throw that one right at you. What do you think the actual will of the people is? Well, aside from the fact that we've been dealing with stadium expansion or new stadium issues for going on two decades here in San Diego. So I think there's a lot of voter apathy and voter um, exhaustion on the issue. I think most people would prefer for the team to stay in Mission Valley. The uh, Chargers have wanted to go to downtown for some time. I'm not necessarily sure at this point, especially given what happened last year when the Chargers were involved in trying to get to Los Angeles and were very public and it was a very vitriolic campaign. I'm not sure necessarily how many San Diegans are even all that concerned at this point with whether or not the team stays and goes because so many bridges were burned a year ago. I feel like with this result, there's going to be a lot of Charger fans that maybe are going to view it as a tit for tat in terms of, hey, you wanted to go to Los Angeles last year. You're not getting your stadium this year. Now maybe we can sit down and work out something that we all like. 
But the bottom line is there's not going to be a, any appetite for any major uh, public subsidy at this point. Well, if that's what they're looking at there, then uh, what's to stop Dean Spanos, in effect, and perhaps rightfully from saying, hey, uh, it's been 15 years. We're playing in possibly the worst stadium in the league, certainly one of the oldest. It needs a lot of work. We're not too excited about playing in this location. And you know what? We have a deal on the table in L.A. We've given you every chance to express your will. You've expressed your will. We understand. And so long. What's to stop that from happening? Well, it's up, ultimately, that's up to Dean Spanos. He's the person who has the option, and he might well decide that he's better off joining the Rams in Los Angeles. I don't know what the odds on that are, but I don't think, and this is just my personal opinion or speculation, I don't think there's a lot of interest at this point in time in the Chargers going to Los Angeles. It's They're not going to get a lot of people who root for them in San Diego to follow them as fans to Los Angeles. There doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite in Los Angeles for the Chargers. There's been speculation over time that Spanos and Kroenke really don't want to be partners and that maybe even the National Football League would prefer to keep the Rams in Los Angeles for at least this short to medium term to make sure that the Rams have a chance to be successful. It's really a tricky spot for Dean Spanos in the sense that there's no immediate option that seems any more appealing than any other unless you're looking at it strictly from a money point of view in terms of how much value the franchise would gain by moving. Jeff, if you were looking into your own crystal ball right now and trying to get a sense of what the most likely scenario would be, what would that be? I think this makes it even more important for people who want to see this charger stay in San Diego. It becomes really, really important to see the uh, NFL approve the Raiders move to Las Vegas. The reason this is important is, like I said earlier, the Raiders have the second option to come to Los Angeles if the Chargers don't exercise it. However, if the Raiders move to Las Vegas is approved by the league, the time constraint, the time pressure on the Chargers to exercise that option disappears. There are other elements in such a deal that would have to be worked out regarding how, how much money the Rams can start to collect for their own stadium project in Inglewood. But if Dean Spanos wanted to give it another try in San Diego, the resolution of the Raiders' move to Las Vegas is the really big domino that has to fall before we can say one way or the other what's going to happen with the Chargers. Man, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Jeff, uh, we want to refer everybody to your blog now to keep an eye on this situation. It's Bolts from the Blue, the SB Nation site. Covering the Chargers news and analysis, we wish you continued success with that. And thanks so much for the visit. Okay, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. We will be coming back. We'll be talking shop. That is next. Stand by right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit 
fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. A regular part of our program is Talking Shop. This is when we head to the water cooler, and Jeff Schmidt is waiting for us there, the executive producer of Stadiums USA, and we're going to talk about stadiums right now. Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information. So check it out, stadiumsusa.com. All right, Jeff, here we go. Now, in our last segment, of course, our listeners they heard about the stadium vote in San Diego. And, of course, the other big vote this past week was in Arlington, Texas, where the proposal for a new Rangers ballpark, as it turned out, passed easily. This is a little surprising to me in the turbulent political times we're in. What's the story here, Jeff? Yeah, I know you and Neil DeMoss talked about this last week or so. It did pass 60% to 40%. Now, that measure calls for the city of Arlington to issue $500 million in bonds to help pay for the $1 billion retractable roof stadium. The money to pay off those bonds will come from a half cent of sales tax, 2% hotel occupancy tax, and a 5% car rental tax. Now, voters also approved a ticket tax of up to 10% and a parking tax of up to $3 at the new stadium. So I think it's safe to say if you cross into Arlington city limits, some way or another, you're going to be contributing to that new ballpark. (laughs) (laughs) The stadium will be built in a parking lot that's located just south of Globe Life Park. That's the Rangers' current home. Some comparison here, Globe Life Park, uh, the current park for the Rangers, holds slightly more than 48,000 fans. That new park will be a bit more intimate with a seating capacity of 42,000 with the expected completion date bill right around 2020 or 2021. Jeff, interesting numbers are out on which NFL cities produce the most unruly fan bases, and I think this is the most fascinating story of the week. We've looked at this before, looking at stadium security, but we've never really seen it broken down on a venue-by-venue break. I'm surprised at the results here as to who has a problem and maybe the most unusual part of it, who doesn't have a problem. Some good numbers. Of course, our stadium security expert has dove in on past segments on this, but it was interesting. Now, this story was originally released, I believe, by the Washington Post, and that was picked up by a number of local markets when they found their stadiums was on that unruly fan list. Before I break down those venues, some numbers for you. The average number of arrests last year per stadium in the NFL was between six and seven. I thought that was kind of low, but I guess that's the average. So Mm -hmm. we'll take that with a grain of salt. But a handful of stadiums, the average arrests were twice or sometimes three times more than that number. Not surprising here that more arrests happened at night games. The number of arrests seemed to spike when the matchups feature teams that are divisional foes. So you maybe you're going to see more arrests in a a Jets-Patriots or a Ravens-Steelers contest. Um... You can file that probably under fan familiarity. People got to know one another in the stadiums. And shocking to report, I'm being sarcastic here, (laughs) fans were more likely to end up 
in handcuffs after their home team was beaten in the contest. (laughs) So no surprises there. And here's our list, Bill. Our top seven venues for fan arrests. Number seven, Lambeau Field in Green Bay. That's a bit surprising. Number six, Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara. Number five is Heinz Field in Pittsburgh. Number four, the Coliseum in Oakland. I can hear whispers out there now. Why aren't they number one? (laughs) Uh, Number three and number two, basically a tie here. The Jets are third, the Giants second. Of course, they call uh, their home MetLife Stadium in the uh, Meadowlands. And here's a clue to the number one stadium for the most arrests. This city lost a stadium referendum this week. (laughs) Yes, it's San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium at more than 24 arrests per game. Funny thing, I had nothing but good experiences. I lived in Southern California for a number of years, attended a number of Chargers games, loved it. Of course, I thought back on this, Bill. I think they won every game that I attended. (laughs) Everybody was in a good mood. So some interesting numbers there to pour over as it relates to uh, fan arrests. All right. And on the positive side, Seattle and Chicago. I did see those. I was quite surprised. Ah. We've seen the way the Bears play. Is it safe to say apathy has set in? Yeah, this is going to ruin our reputation here. We have the the best behaved fans in sports. I find that a little hard to believe. Exactly. uh, Oh, man. All right, Jeff, let's take a look back at significant stadium and ballpark events. What do you have for us this week in stadium history? Well, that's some good stuff, Bill. This week, 1931, the iconic Maple Leaf Gardens opens in Toronto. That night, the Leafs skate to a 2-1 to win over the Chicago Blackhawks. This week, 1957, a then-record crowd, more than 102,000, watched the 49ers and Rams battle at the L.A. Coliseum. This week, a number of new NBA arenas open for business. 1991, the Delta Center opens in Salt Lake City as the Jazz christen their new building with a win over the Seattle Supersonics. Mm -hmm. And this week, 1994, Gund Arena opens in Cleveland, that venue today known as Quicken Loans Arena. Very good. And before I let you go, Bill, here's something to toss your way. How about a stadium quiz question from our Stadiums USA website? I'm ready. All right, here we go. (laughs) This big leaguer is the only player in the history of Shea Stadium to hit a home run into the upper deck in left field. Mm -hmm. Can you name that player? Is it Tommy Agee, Dave Kingman, George Foster, or Mark McGuire. Any ideas on that one? Oh, yes, I do. Kingman, Foster, and McGuire were home run sluggers. And by the way, I played basketball against Dave Kingman in junior <laughs> high school. They, That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, Kingman was a slugger. He was a man when he was like 13 years old, believe me. He was a monster. Uh, but it couldn't have been any of those three because I think that's to railroad me down the garden path. You have Tommy A sitting there. I remember him when he was with the White Sox. He had a lot of pop in his bat. I'm going for Tommy Agee. That's a very good guess. It was Tommy Agee. He sent one into Section 48, the upper deck of Shea's left field against Montreal in 1969. Expo's outfielder Mac Jones said the ball was still rising when it hit the upper deck seats. 
Well, every dog has his day. What can I tell you? I finally got one right. It was my day today. All right, Jeff, thank you. Coming up, we take a look at what NBA arenas present a true home court advantage. The Fast Breaks Jerry Tapp has some numbers that may surprise you. It surprised me. That's next, right here on SB Nation Radio. Here's a great topic for early in the NBA season, and that is home court advantage and some fascinating questions. What a great time to do an article on this, and that's exactly what Jerry Tapp has done. What team has a 27 consecutive season home winning record? We'll find that out in this segment, along with teams that have in the last 10 seasons have been steadily winning on their home court. There aren't many of them, but we're going to talk with sports writer Jerry Tapp, who has worked on the Today's Pigskin, Today's Knuckleball site, and also his most recent piece, Inside the Numbers, Home Court Advantages, uh, where you'll find it at the Fast Break website. Jerry, welcome to the program. And why don't we just go ahead and start from scratch? This is a great thing to be doing this time of the year. Uh, When we go over the recent seasons, who seems to be really uh, putting a notch in it as far as a home court advantage is concerned? First of all, Bill, thanks for uh, inviting me to be on the show. A pleasure. Um, what what I did was, with regard to this article that you're referencing that appeared in today's Fast Break, I was curious to look at the last five seasons and to try to get a sense of which teams were winning more often at home versus how they win on the road. It kind of went in with a hypothesis that every team plays better at home than on the road. I think we can all pretty much agree on that. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I looked at the last five NBA seasons, and what I did was compared the games that they won at home versus the games that they won on the road. Some real simple statistics that probably evolved is in the last five years, uh, the San Antonio Spurs have won 168 games at home. That's a a little under 34 per season. Of course, it helps that the Spurs have a good team and and have been one of the best teams over the past five years. So they're going to win on the road and at home. Um, Oklahoma City was second in that category with 155. But what I wanted to do is then kind of compare the home and away And one of the interesting things I found was a team like Portland, the Trailblazers, had 56 more wins at home than they had on the road. So clearly the Trailblazers like playing at home versus on the road, especially if when you divide it by the five seasons I looked at, they're winning like 11 more games at home than they are on the road for an average season. So that was kind of the premise. I wanted to get a sense of of how teams were playing, but I also wanted to do some comparison between their home record 
and uh, their road uh, wins as well. Let's find out about four NBA teams you mentioned in your article that have been very good over the last 10 seasons. That's a lengthy period of time to be tough at home, and they have had winning home court records. Who are they? Well, what I did, I wanted to get a sense of the teams that have been playing above 500 at home for a long period of time. And, and what, I, what I did is I kind of charted out, obviously, each of the teams. The answer to your question, Bill, is I found out that there were four teams that have a winning record in their home games in each of the last 10 seasons. Now, I don't know if your listeners would be able to uh, answer who those four teams are. But when I wrote this article, I thought I want to start out the story by asking these questions because I wanted people to kind of think about it. I think people have a preconceived notion, but I'm not sure if they knew that it were these four teams. But the four teams that that in the last 10 years have had a winning record at home in each of the last 10 seasons are Dallas, Houston, Indiana, and San Antonio. Wow. That is not the four I would have figured, uh, because I know as a broadcaster in the league over a number of seasons, I know the one place that the players didn't like to go very much <laughs> was Denver, and this is certainly going to come up, because they had the, as the old saying goes, Denver is up there where the air is rare. How much of a home court advantage does Denver have because of uh, their mile-high location? Bill, Denver had 117 home wins over the past five seasons and 77 away wins. So Denver was at a plus 40. And I think if you look at all 30 of the NBA teams, there were only eight teams that had a plus 40 differential between home wins and road wins. And Denver was one of them at plus 40. So they would fit in that category of teams that definitely seem to have a home court advantage, uh, probably as much as uh, some of these other teams. As I mentioned before, Portland, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but Utah, Utah Jazz were a plus 50. Uh, Those were the two teams that were 50 games or more difference between home wins and road wins over the past five years. But again, your question about Denver, they would definitely fit in that category at plus 40. Jerry, it's wonderful to visit on this. It's uh, some great stories. Tells a lot about the workings of the NBA day-to-day. And, brother, there are some tough home courts in the league. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. Jerry, thank you for the visit. And uh, this is a great statistical effort. We suggest that everybody go ahead and check it out, and you will find it at the Fast Break website. Look for this article entitled Inside the Numbers, Home Court Advantage. And the author, our guest, Jerry Tapp. Jerry, all the best. Thanks, Bill. Again, I appreciate your call. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.